and welcome to People Keep Dying, a podcast about people who die. I'm your host, Angela, and today we're continuing on our series for Jack the Ripper with my neighbor, Chrissy. And this is going to work. This is the fourth time. So this is going to record. We're going to do it. And we're going on right now. <laughs> welcome to join. Hello, everyone. Oh. <laughs> uh, I sound a lot croakier than last time because I was sick. So we're and just going to we're going to plow right through and hope that this actually records. And it's it's only been like a month since you've done oh, the last yeah. one. Right. I know Even I was longer, just kind maybe. of reading over some of these notes I made a long time ago. It's like, will I remember all of this? Well, we're probably going to continue on to the second part basically by Halloween. Like this is going to come out during the Halloween season. Oh, okay. So it's going to work out great because people are going to be like wanting to learn about some of the more well-known He's Jack the Ripper is like one of the most well-known. Yeah, murders. I think one of the most well-known, but the least like actually known about. Like people don't really know. There's a lot of speculation. Facts. Yeah. Yeah. People think it's like some huge body count and things like that. And Yeah. It's just that he was so vicious. And I think that might well, have been it. Well, I think that actually I'm going to kind of uh, use this first part to jump off into something that I think contributed to why Jack the Ripper is kind of the the cultural figure that he is. Mm -hmm. So let's jump in then. Uh, so the first thing we're going to talk about was, so we left off with Annie Chapman, who was murdered on September 8th. On September 27th, 19 days later, a letter that was written in red ink came into the Central News Agency, which was like the Associated Press where um, like stories would come in and be written and they would go out to, to different newspapers. It wasn't like one newspaper on its own. Mm -hmm. And the letter said, Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I get buckled. Brand worth the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for the jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. First of all, I think you can tell by like the, the two ha ha's written on an actual like letter that someone had to write by hand. Mm -hmm. It's clearly written by a douchebag. Well, yeah. And also... <sighs> See this, yeah. so this is where the name Jack the Ripper came from, and if you can look up the, um, you can look up pictures of it, and it's actually in pretty nice handwriting. Where is it right now? Like, oh, I think it's letter? actually lost, but there are old pictures oh. of it. Yeah, a lot of the stuff has gone missing, but um, so it's like it's probably in the, like the black market, like <laughs> dark, seedy area. I don't think so because I think someone would have like popped up with it. I'm not sure. I mean, there is that museum in L.A. that has like a collection of like serial killer stuff. So. Yeah. No, I think that um, like a lot of this stuff, they 
um, a lot of this stuff was kept by the Metropolitan Police. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is, I think they do, they have some kind of um, like museum thing at Scotland Yard with some of their stuff from famous cases in it. And so there are a few things there, but a lot of the stuff went missing in the 20th century. Oh. Um, But there are pictures of it. Like you can look it up and see pictures of the actual thing because a lot of researchers have like taken copies Mm -hmm. for for their own things and for publications and things like that. So you can see a lot of these things still. Um, Okay. So let's talk about this letter. So there's a couple things. There's Like the blood he was going to write the letter in? No, actually not that. <laughs> okay. It wasn't. It was just red ink. Like, no, I mean, he was he wanted to write the letter. What a melodramatic right? asshole. And he's like, oh, but the blood clotted. So I, I guess he's not a doctor because a doctor would have known that the blood would have clotted before well, he could use it for a liquid. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty much right away, the cops, a lot of the cops didn't think this was actually from the killer there had been letters coming in by um by like you know people claiming that they were the killer um but then this one came in and it didn't come to a newspaper like i said it came to the central news agency um which most people would not have known about Mm -hmm. and the cops pretty quickly had a suspect of this one journalist that they thought had written it and sent it in and so that brings me to what i think has kind of really created the Jack the Ripper. So he created, like that writer probably created. I mean, he created the name. um, And, uh, and most, I think most people today, most researchers today also believe that this was not the killer and that it was written by like some newspaper man. Wasn't there like an assumption that he might, Jack the Ripper might be like the literate, the actual murderer might Um, be? um i don't i think like i was i was watching some documentary where they're speculating that he was just like a mentally ill person who yeah yeah yeah, that's yeah um but there was so that actually kind of plays into the newspapers as well so in the in the 1850s and 60s there were um, a lot of taxes on things like papers and publication and the, the paper itself that newspapers were printed on were repealed and it was called a tax on knowledge so um, all of these taxes and duties were being repealed, which made um, newspapers a lot more available and a lot cheaper. So at the time that this is happening in the 1880s, there's been this explosion in newspapers. And it's not just like, you know, for the for the rich people in the West End anymore. Now mm-hmm. there's, um, you know, there was one that was just about what the police were doing and they would have drawings of, you know, horrible mutilated bodies and things like that oh my god and later on like pictures from the mortuaries and like things like that so that makes so much sense yeah so all so it went you know kind of all the way from you know like the highbrow kind of wall street journal type of ones down to like the seediest tabloids where they would just like make things up out of whole cloth Mm -hmm. and it was a pretty it was a vicious world like they they would um they would go around like they would follow cops and try to figure out who they were talking to and who their suspects might be. They would bribe cops or sometimes threaten people. They would bribe witnesses to speak to them. Sometimes they would just straight up make things up because they, you know, there wasn't really anything to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. It was all just about having the most sensational story to sell your newspapers. Um, so this basically kind of happened because there were all these stories about the murders, especially with um, Martha Tabra, Polly Nichols, and Annie Chapman that had happened, and the the panic was starting to really work up. 
uh, because as we mentioned last time, while there was a lot of violent crime in Whitechapel, um, murder was not common at all. So there was a lot of like beating up Mm -hmm. and things like that, but not a lot of murders. So people were really scared when this started happening. And then, you know, it started feeding into the, the, you know, newspapers and the tabloids. So basically they think that, um, that there had been kind of a lull between the last murder. So Polly Nichols was, um, August 31st and then Annie Chapman was September 8th. And now this is the 27th. So there's been kind of a gap and things I think were kind of slowing down with the press. And so this gets sent and um, they think that it was kind of like a way to kickstart things as well as to give them like a snappy name like Jack the Ripper. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it was just called the White Chapel Murderer. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about was it mentioned in here leather apron. So that I kind of skipped in the last one because I didn't really want to talk about it. But now you have to. And I straight up forgot that it was mentioned in this letter. So I have to. Um, So after the murder of um, Polly Nichols, they their rumors started going around about um, local sex workers being threatened by this guy who is known as Leather Apron. And a lot of workmen wore leather aprons at the time. It was a really common thing. She would wear it for like shoe working, like slaughtering animals. Yeah. Yeah. Like blacks, like tons of professions. They were as common as, you know, saying like, oh, you had sneakers on or a belt on or something. Yeah. It was a really common thing. But so these stories started getting around and, you know, of course the press picks up on it and some of the cops start investigating that line. And apparently over 50 women had said that they had been threatened by this person known as Leather Apron. And so this one cop he says, oh, I know a guy who goes by Leather Apron, and his name was John Pizer. So this cop goes to John Pizer, who is a local man. I believe he was Jewish as well. Um, and he tur- he basically rolls up at his house and says, hey, you're Leather Apron. John Pizer says, literally no one has ever called me that in my entire life. <laughs> but they arrest him, and it makes like a big scene and at one point, they're like a mob basically formed to try to like kill him because they believed that wow. he was the killer because the cops were saying it. Right? Mm-hmm. And so he he ended up getting taken in. And then um, they they in like some inquests or whatever, they proved that it wasn't him and he had alibis for the murders. And, and I think he ended up he he sued some of the newspapers for libel and they ended up settling out of court. So I mean, I'm glad we haven't changed that much. I know. Right. Since- well, even like I, I was actually I was thinking that with the letters, too, because other letters had come in besides the Dear Boss letters of people mm-hmm. claiming to be uh, the killer writing this letter and like writing these hoax things. And I feel like it's kind of one of those things that people look at it in modern crimes and they think, what's wrong with people? Like, why would they do that? People have always days, been doing it. It's That's- like, but then, yeah, all these people are doing it. People in um, in like different cities in England, there mm-hmm. were several women that I remember hearing about um, from a researcher on the Ripper cast that there were several women who ended up being like charged, criminally charged for writing Jack the Ripper hoax letters. They should be, though. Yeah. Because it's very misleading and it's ruining yeah. the case. Well, and it just made things so muddy because then, you know, now even now people are looking at all of these letters and saying, well, is this one real? Is that one real? Mm-hmm. Like, if, if this one's real, is that one, you know, does that exclude this one, et cetera, et cetera. And we call him Jack the Ripper because of this letter, too. Because, yeah, essentially yeah. because of this hoax letter that was kind of cooked up to be exactly what was needed to sell newspapers. Mm-hmm. 
So we haven't changed. Yeah. So Good to know. <laughs> so the world turns and nothing changes, mm-hmm. basically. Actually, in one documentary about Jack the Ripper, I remember the the one guy talking about um, you know, an, an editorial that was in a, a newspaper at the time. And it was basically an older man writing in to say, you know, the youth today, they're so disrespectful to their elders. Back in my day, that we weren't like that. They've always got their nose stuck in their penny dreadfuls, oh not engaging gosh. in the world. And I'm like, oh, good to see nothing's changed. And then they still complain about like the the millennials or the youth. Yeah. And it's like, you guys are just as bad. You can't act like you're so much better than us. But no one wants to accept it. But, but I, I just love that. Like thinking like, so penny dreadfuls were the iPhones <laughs> of the Victorian era. I mean, nowadays oh. I see like high schoolers and then I'm like, these freaking, you know, these hooligan types, <laughs> these youngins are wandering around the streets. These and I'm Gen like, Z's. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I was no better, but whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let us move along to September 30th. And our next person we're going to talk about is a woman named Elizabeth Stride, or as she was also known, Long Liz. Um, so she was born Elizabeth Gustaf. Gustav's daughter, geez, on a farm in Sweden, which I feel like people don't really realize that either. That like one of them was like I didn't know that like one of them. Of yeah, yeah, I didn't realize one of them are like international. They always get yeah, like kind of portrayed as like all like English, English, yeah. and like kind of of Whitechapel and stuff. But mm-hmm. almost, I think hardly any of them were from London. Like they pretty much all kind of ended up there because you know they had all these like you know bad decisions, bad situations out of their control. And they kind of ended up there. That's also where you go. Like if you're, you can't get that much money as like a yeah. higher class yeah. sex worker either. So oh, that's going to come up later. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Elizabeth Gustav's daughter, which I'm guessing that her father was Gustav then. Anyway, um, in Sweden, um, at the time of her death in 1880, she was 45 years old. So she's right in line with the rest of our victims so far. So when she was 16, she moved to Gothenburg to be a maid, so to go into domestic service. Uh, However, five years later, she was registered as a sex worker with the police. I couldn't really find what that meant, if that just meant that, like, she had been charged with something or if they just kind of kept Was it illegal? I don't know. I could not really find much about uh, Swedish (laughs) (laughs) criminalization of sex. I mean, I would assume it was because it was... I don't know if it's Europe. Was, oh, I don't know in if the it was 19th century. Was it incredibly like religiously repressive? I wonder. I mean, I don't know. Like Protestant Europeans, so I would think so. <laughs> <laughs> but you go to Whitechapel knowing, um, you know. Well, she she didn't she she got there in a very circuitous way. Okay. So five years after she moved to Gothenburg, she was no longer in domestic service. She was um, working as a sex worker. And she ended up giving birth to a daughter who is stillborn. And she was also recorded on the hospital registers as being treated for syphilis. And it's very common for um, everyone for to babies have syphilis. to have to, to be stillborn oh, okay. when like the mother has syphilis. So that is kind of a typical thing there. So in in the early half of 1866, she moves to London. And she has to register with the local Swedish church as an unmarried woman. So I guess that's the kind of thing you need to keep tabs on. They kept tabs of everything, you know. <laughs> uh, 
in 69, so three years after she arrived, she marries a man named John Stride. So that's what she became, Liz Stride. Oh. They ran a coffee shop um, in kind of a nicer part of the, the East End. Um, I believe I heard on the Ripper cast, of course, I could not find it when I went back to listen. But I believe that someone mentioned that, the, like, even though it was called a coffee house at the time, they did actually serve alcohol as well. Um, but anyway, they ran this together. She worked in the coffee shop. You know, people loved her, apparently. She was um, described as, like, a really, like, generous, nice person. Like, mm-hmm. people didn't really have a bad thing to say about her, except when she was drinking, I guess. Uh, they ended up selling the coffee shop in 1875, but we don't really have a good idea of what happened to precipitate that or when they split up um, because in 1884, the husband dies. So John Stride dies. However, if we go back to 1881 and 82, she's treated in the Whitechapel Infirmary for bronchitis. She goes to the Whitechapel Workhouse. Um, she's living in DOS houses in the Whitechapel area. So at this time, it seems like she and her husband have broken up. So, I mean, theoretically, sometime between selling the coffee shop, we would think in early 1880s, she and her husband split up, um, which, of course, happened with a lot of these uh, victims that we're talking about. A lot of the victims seemed like they were married. And then because yeah. you can't get remarried and the whole yeah, the whole thing, the whole thing about divorce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, which doesn't make sense because that's why the whole Church of England ended up being a thing at all. It's anyway, only if you're a king. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Exactly. Uh, so she would tell people in the East End that her husband and children died on this famous shipwreck that happened in the Thames. And it was called the Princess Alice. Um, and it was this whole big thing where the ship sank and between 600 and 700 people died. However... Her husband did not die in that year, and she didn't have any living children. So it seems like she just made that up to be kind of like a, More sympathetic. a sympathy story mm-hmm. to, um, because she was entirely destitute and a lot of times like, you know, asking for help and things like that. In 1885, she starts living with a man named Michael Kidney, and they had a stormy, violent, on and off again relationship. Um, he says that her heavy drinking is to blame. He says this after she's dead, so she can't say anything back to him. But, mm-hmm. you know, he was not a paragon of clean living, so. No, no one in, in any of these stories are. No, no. So. Yeah, like, you don't you don't really end up in these DOS houses for, mm-hmm. you know, you don't end up there just by kind of happenstance. It's mm-hmm. like the, lo- the bottom of the barrel of, like, you know. You've hit rock bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of instances of um, of uh, domestic violence, and they had both at times been charged, but then basically they just never showed up to the magistrate's court to proceed with anything, um, which is pretty standard and even still today. Hmm. In the 20 months before her death, she ended up being arrested for things like public intoxication drunk and disorderly, and other alcohol-related crimes eight times. Um, however, like I said, she was described by other people who lodged with her and her friends in the area as being good-natured, willing to do a good turn, cheerful, like give you the, the shirt off your back kind of person, which um, I find that interesting that a lot of the victims were described like that, like people with the exception of Emma Smith, who just got character assassinated at her inquest. Mm -hmm. But all the rest of them, people say like, oh, you know, she was such a nice, 
lady and whatever. I wonder if that's how you become a victim, though, because divorce is not the But then the interesting thing, though, is that they did have these other things like, you know, like Polly Nichols was known as like a brawler and Mm -hmm. Annie Chapman got into like a fist fight, you know, not long before hers. So I kind of wonder if being in like that extreme poverty, if that kind of um, had something to do with like when you have something, you like share it. It kind of, I kind of get that sense about about, uh, Liz Stride that she would, you know, like she would share anything with someone because, you know, that it might be a couple of days down the line and she doesn't have anything and she might be relying on one of her friends that's true, to share yeah. what they have with her. So like, that's kind of what I think was going on, but that is kind of my own interpretation, I guess. It's all speculation at this point too. Yeah. So, so on September 26th, um, so just a few days before her death, uh, she shows up at the Doss house on Flower and Dean Street. And she tells a woman that she knows there that she has, quote, had words with the man she was living with, who is Michael Kidney. And that's why she had turned up there alone at the Doss house. Um, so she basically, she showed up, they had had some kind of fight and she had left wherever they were living together and she was staying there for the night. Um, she ended up picking up some cleaning work in the Doss house uh, so that they would pay her six pence. So then she had two pence or sorry, four pence for her bed and then two left over. So basically she stayed um, at the doll's house for, for a few days there. And I think she even ended up like Michael Kidney ended up showing up and they spoke to each other, mm-hmm. but she stayed there. And at one point, some guy comes around who was like writing some piece or he was like worked for church or something like that. He wasn't like a skeezy reporter like some of them, but he was writing accounts about what was happening. And mm-hmm. he went into this doll's house And he spoke to a bunch of the women there who were talking about how afraid they were and that they might be next. And one of these women was supposedly Elizabeth Stride. And then a few days later, she is murdered. Uh, So if we go now to September 30th. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if we're talking about her here. She's probably dead. Well, they're they're all dead. They're all dead by now, yeah. Okay, so as I said earlier, which may or may not have been cut out. She had been doing some cleaning work in the Doss house Mm -hmm. and she was paid six pence for it. And so if we remember, like a bed for the night was usually about four pence. Mm -hmm. So she has six. She gets paid for the cleaning of the day. So she has the six pence in her pocket. She ends up showing it to the um, to the watchman as she's heading out for the night to go gallivanting because people are just up all night. (laughs) It's weird. Um. Anyway, so he sees her head out. He knows who she is. They have words. You know, he knows that she has six pence on her and she heads out. Around 11 p.m., two men see Elizabeth Stride kissing and canoodling with a man on Burner Street. So they were like being all affectionate, like teenager, lovey-dovey. They hear that man that she's like making out with, making a comment about leather apron getting her. Um, that is weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it was a common. It seemed to be a common thing, the time where people would be like, you know, watch out, leather apron's gonna get you. I, I but, guess. Mm. I mean, she was just one of the ones where someone said it to her, and then a couple hours. Later yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, forty-five minutes later, eleven forty-five, there is another man who sees Liz making out with a man who might be different or might be the same, because um, you're just going on um, eyewitness descriptions not even like sketches or anything like that right like just how they describe the person so we don't know if it's the same guy as at 11 o'clock it might be a different guy this guy overhears this guy say to her quote 
you would say anything but your prayers. So there we go. I don't know. Just I think creepy because she dies. Yeah, that's true. So nearly an hour later, 1235, um, there's a policeman and he sees a man with a deer stalker hat, which is like the Sherlock Holmes hat Mm -hmm. um, across from the International Working Men's Educational Club. And that was a club, like kind of an afterwork club that was for local Jewish men to hang out, have meetings. They would have like um, like music and things like that. That night they had a speaker that was speaking to them about why Jews should be supporting socialism. Just, you know, regular 1880s stuff. So, um, so anyway, this policeman, he doesn't see Liz, but he sees a man in a deer stalker hat which is not what the guy she was making out with was wearing. Okay. This is yet another guy. But it could be the same guy just with a hat on, right? Well, people like people always wore hats. And that's actually what's interesting if you really get into the weeds about all of the um, witness uh, descriptions mm-hmm. is that people will describe really well like what hats people are wearing and like oh. the color of their coats and things because you like no one went out without a hat on. Mm-hmm. And so there were people that had like, you know, like peaked hats, which are like those kind of like golfer looking hats Mm -hmm. um and like you know like deer stalker hats felt hats like they you can tell kind of who they are by all of these hats and actually there was a really interesting um part that i heard on it on again on a ripper cast great great series love that (laughs) podcast they put out things really infrequently now because they started in like 2008. So they've yeah, covered a lot. Yeah. But um, there were these women who, it, this is like kind of unrelated to the Jack the Ripper story, but they were just women who were sex workers at the time. So it's just kind of a social history sort of thing. And they would actually go in together and buy bonnets and like different kind of dressings for the bonnets. And they would share them amongst themselves because you couldn't, they couldn't afford to have multiple bonnets that makes so they had this kind of like bonnet co-op so Mm -hmm. that they could all kind of have different like nicer bonnets than what they'd be able to afford by themselves Mm -hmm. but for like most people you had like the one hat that you would wear oh okay because you couldn't you you know it wasn't like you could run down to forever 21 and get one for like three dollars you can't do that here now either. no that's true that's true okay let's go to 12 45 in the morning freaking everybody's still out anyway this 22-year-old guy, whose name is Israel Schwartz, he's a Jewish immigrant uh, who lives in Whitechapel. He doesn't speak English at all. Uh, he turns into Burner Street, and he sees a man struggling with a woman that he later identifies as Liz. And that man ends up throwing her to the ground. There is another man nearby who's smoking a pipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, dude who threw her down looks at Israel Lipsky, or sorry, no, I said it wrong, Damn it. The guy who threw her down looks at Israel Schwartz and he yells out Lipsky. Lipsky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which from last time we remember was a famous case of the area where um, a man named Israel Lipsky killed a woman, a pregnant woman. So and this was um, like kind of a, a local, a localized slur. Mm-hmm. And it was quite often um, followed by violence. So. Israel Schwartz, he sees this woman get thrown down. The guy yells out this racial slur at him. And the guy with the pipe who he's Israel Schwartz in this kind of brief sighting, he doesn't know if these two guys are together or if they've just both happened to be standing on the street. Mm -hmm. But so the guy with the pipe ends up like running kind of like towards Israel Schwartz Mm -hmm. and he doesn't know what's going on. So he takes off running and he looks over his shoulder and he sees the pipe guy is running behind him. 
So he doesn't know if he's, if that guy is coming after him mm-hmm. to like attack him or if that guy is also running from the guy who threw the woman down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Instead of trying to help her, obviously. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just, you know, it's just a domestic dispute. You don't mm-hmm. want to get in the middle of that. That's true. Um, so Schwartz's description is very different from the cop that was by 10 minutes earlier. 10 minutes? Yes, 10 minutes earlier. Um, about like the deer stalker hat. And police, for whatever reason, they believed that Schwartz's description was most likely the murderer, not what the cop had seen. So they think that it must have been either another guy mm-hmm. or an entirely different guy that the cop had seen that wasn't the murderer. Um, okay, so that was 1245. Now we're going to one o'clock. This is a very tight timeline. So at one o'clock, a man is driving a cart pulled by a pony and he turns into this passageway off of Burner Street that is like the alley right beside the working man's club where they're having this meeting with all these people inside. And his pony ends up like shying away and kind of like pulling back and won't go any further into like this pitch black courtyard. And so the man, he um, he pulls out a match and lights it because he can't, it's pitch black there. He lights it and he sees this body on the ground. Oh no. So he gets off of his cart and he runs into the club where all these men are having this meeting. And he says, there's a woman on the ground. So they all come out and, you know, the police are called, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, she had a silk. So she was wearing a silk handkerchief around her neck and it had been pulled up to the side. So like the killer had kind of pulled it up to kind of like pull her head up away from her neck. And she had a deep cut to her neck. And they believed that um, that because she was still like warm and no mutilation besides the cut to the neck had happened yet. They think that when the pony went into the this dark alley that the killer was actually standing right there. Oh my god. And that the pony like, you know, reacted to the yeah. person standing there that the guy couldn't see because it was so dark. Mm-hmm. And so then when when the cart driver goes into the working man's club, the killer just walks, walks out. away. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's basically, crazy. Yeah. So um so the police come and everything and people are looking. No one heard a thing. Same as like all these other ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one heard her yell anything. It's most likely like the others that she was like somehow throttled beforehand to to um, keep her from like yelling out. And also it would like briefly reduce the blood flow if you're being like choked for a while. It was like a forensic countermeasure before we had a word for it. Sort of. Yeah. Right? Well, I, it was it was also Not just a, forensic, a better but I mean, way yeah. to kill someone without them like shouting because these were in such cramped populated quarters. I think he like whoever Jack the Ripper was definitely learned it really early on. Like that's all you need to do. Yeah. To get a silent. I think he murder. had a lot of luck on his side too, though. Yeah. Because like if this guy had have like pulled another match and he was standing there, if this guy had have lit another match, you might have seen him. That's true. So I heard this really interesting theory about um people like serial killers that they have this condition where like their heart rate, their resting heart rate is just so low that they don't feel like fear and stuff the way that normal people do. Mm-hmm. And that might be a contributing factor to why they do these like, you know, crazy risk taking things that the rest of us would be so scared that we'd get caught. I mean, most of us wouldn't go around murdering people. That's yeah. true. Yep. Especially so many, so many people yeah. more than. Yeah. So that is Liz Stride. So a lot of people, I would say that now in like kind of current ripperology, 
I think a lot of people are more in agreement on Martha Tabram being an official Ripper victim okay. than they are about Elizabeth Stride anymore. Oh, And it's because there was no mutilation. It was sense. just the neck cut. Even so, though it's probably because he was like, they got to her so quickly. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's kind of, that was always, that was the police at the time believed. And a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people who still believe it, that um, he cut her throat. And it's just because this uh, man with the pony in the cart mm -hmm. just happened to pull into that. And dark that's alley. the reason why he didn't get yeah. to mutilate her yeah. body. Yeah. Makes and sense. there's, uh, there's more because this night was not known as the murder of Elizabeth Stride. This night was known as the double event. Oh, yes. No. So now I know. Now we're going to go on to another woman. So her name was Catherine Addos. She went by Kate. And so she was also killed September 30th, 1888. She was 46 years old at the time of her death. She was from Wolverhampton. So again, outside of London. Um, as a child, her, her father and her uncle, they were, um, I think they were in like some kind of mining or something like that. There was like a strike and they were basically all out of jobs. And so they packed up all their families and walked to London, which was really sure. far. Mm -hmm. I should have looked up how far that is, but it is not walking distance. Anyway. Well, back then everything was walking distance, I guess. Well, it's because they were poor though. Like, yeah. normal, like if you were, I would say even like, like a kind of like a lower middle class, you would be able to pay for like a like the, the stage coaches that were basically kind of like buses, oh, okay. like a shared okay. coach kind of thing. But these people just all had to walk. Mm -hmm. So they, they gathered up all of their kids and everything and they walked there. They had very good cardio on that. Yeah, I guess she had to and there was no yeah. other way to get there. So Kate and she had several sisters. They went to charity schools and their father ended up dying, which meant that they went between those charity schools and workhouses because they didn't have anyone to support them. So they were kind of like dependent on the charity of the place that they were living on. There wasn't like social assistance, really. It was kind of like these private things. At some point, Kate ended up going back to Wolverhampton. No word on if she walked back or not. And she was living with her aunt for a period. While there, when she was about 21, she met an army pensioner uh, he was not an old guy, apparently, but apparently he was on a pension. I don't know. He was older than her anyway, but he wasn't like super old or something. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, she ran mm -hmm. away with him in a lope. Um, they bounced around the Midlands, which is where I should have said that's where Wolverhampton is. It's like in the middle part. Um, they made money by selling cheap books and they would write and uh, and like produce gallows ballads. So when there would be like a, a public hanging, you know, and everybody would go mm -hmm. grand old mm -hmm. entertainment, they would pass out um, like they would have songs made up about like the crimes oh. and stuff. There's a really good um, there's a really good series like documentary series by Lucy Worsley. Mm -hmm. um, and she talks about Victorian crime and how it kind of started the true crime obsession and stuff and people would like, you know, buy these ballads and people would buy there was a famous murder where this young woman was supposed to elope with this guy they ended up killing her and burying her in this red barn and then I think her like stepmother had a dream about her and they ended up finding the body later and the guy was executed and people were selling like little statues of the barn oh my god because gosh. it was famous so in conclusion people have always been crap well, people have always been obsessed with murder. Oh, and yeah. 
that. It's just so awful. Everything awful, everyone's always loved. Yes. Yes. So, so that's what she and this guy were doing. They would go around to these different towns in the Midlands and they would be selling books. They would write these gallows ballads and sell them at executions. Supposedly, her own cousin was being hanged and she was selling ballads at his hanging. I mean, maybe they weren't close or maybe they were and she really hated him. I don't know. I think that she was just, you know, really poor. And they needed to make money. Money is more important than people. Yeah. 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 Um, I get. I, well, I mean, yeah, I guess so. If you're like starving. Even now, it doesn't even matter. Money's yeah. more. You know what? Yeah. Watching the news now. I don't know. Money's more important you, than people. I think if you had the choice, like if, if you weren't dependent on it for like your, you know, food and whatever, that you probably wouldn't do that at, for like a person that you cared about. I think we should care more about people who and this I think well I die. think I think that that was really a necessity thing <laughs> yeah. for them. Um anyway, they ended up having a baby girl named Annie in 1865 and they moved to London. Kate ended up quote running away from this guy because apparently she's still under I don't know, you know, women they're not real people. <laughs> They've never been real people. No. No. So she ran away from this guy who it's unclear if they were ever actually married or not. Um, but with really poor people, as you can probably tell from a lot of these stories, a lot of times they did not actually formally get married. They would no. just kind of shack up together because mm-hmm. they really like needed each other. You couldn't get by no. as, like, just a single person. So you needed to have that like male female couple, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, like we'll see later on with someone like she meets a guy and they move in together like two days later. Because it's easier to try well, it to. It was just like necessary. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like a now being able to like rent something or rent like an apartment. Yeah. You meet another person most yeah. of the time now. So, um, so we're not sure if they were legally married or if it was just like a common law thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she ends up running away from this dude and goes back to her aunt with the baby. But her aunt turns her away. Basically, like, you know, uh, like, sounds like slut shames her, basically. And it's like, you're not coming into my, you know, good Christian house or something like that. Yeah. So she doesn't really have anywhere else to go. So she has to go back to this guy. Mm -hmm. And over the years, they end up having another um, girl and a boy. Oh, my God. Yes. So in 1881, they end up splitting up and they each took a kid. So the oldest one, Annie Jr., she was already married and moved out and she was moving around a lot and not telling her mother where she was going because her mother would keep coming and trying to ask for money. Mm -hmm. But so she and her husband, they're like, let's split up. Clearly, the logical thing is I'll take the girl, you take the boy and we never speak again. So that's what they did. Mm -hmm. Sure. She moves to a common lodging house in Flarendine Street and there she meets a man named John Kelly and they end up doing what we just talked about. They partner up and they're a couple now and a lot of times they pose as like husband and wife or they're they're essentially like common law and does uh, she have more children no because i think at this point she was kind of older because she was 46 and 88 yeah yeah yeah, that makes sense kelly and the people at the doss house they also had really good things to say about kate they said that she was very scholarly from her time at these uh charity schools that i think a lot of the other victims didn't really get that chance for like an education um they said she was happy she was always singing um she was not known to quote walk the streets and she didn't drink often but when she did it was to excess if you don't drink often i feel like even like 
three beers can be to excess. Yeah. 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 Well, I think there's, I think that kind of a common theory of why the alcohol consumption was like it was back then was that because if you, if you needed to go out and be like a, you know, like a two or four penny sex worker, Mm -hmm. it was just such like horrific conditions. And then you would go pay for your bed that was like that you'd share with someone else and the sheets hadn't been changed in months and Mm -hmm. you can hear the vermin crawling in your bed. Mm. It's such horrific conditions that you have to numb yourself to it. That's true. You can't just, you know, you can't, you can't do it sober basically. Mm -hmm. So it's, it seems like it's kind of one of those things where it's like the toxic circle and they kind of like you. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like you can't really blame them. No, no. For this. Um, anyway. So it seems like she was really like a a very infrequent sex worker, which a lot of women were in the East End at the time. There were very few people who were like professional sex workers where it was like their sole profession. Um, A lot of these women, they would be like selling flowers or little trinkets in the streets and um, they would only turn to the sex work when they didn't have any other money. So it was really like a survival thing. It wasn't for most of them. It wasn't a an everyday regular thing. So every year she and John Kelly, her common law husband, boyfriend, whatever, they would go hop picking. So like hops that, you know, um, it wasn't beer. Hipsters used to make craft beer. Yeah. Okay. So they would leave town. Of course they walked because they were super poor and they would go out to the countryside. Uh, I believe in Kent didn't write it down. I don't know. Somewhere. Kent is a place. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a place in England. It's near London. Um, so anyway, they, they would go hot picking every year this year. It was apparently a bust for whatever reason. They, they ended up coming back essentially penniless. They didn't really make money and, uh, they were, they were going to be basically turning up in London with not a cent to their name. And there was another couple that was traveling with, um, with Kate Eddowes and John Kelly. And this woman gave Kate Eddowes a pawn ticket that was for a shirt that was in a pawn shop in London. Um, and she said that it was, it was there. If you wanted to pay two pence, she thought it would fit John Kelly. And she said, you can have it if you want it. So that kind of like that, that also kind of goes back to what I was saying about Liz Stride, where it seems like these people who are like super, super poor, you know, if they have one little thing, they're going to share it with someone else because they had like nothing. So she took this pawn ticket. It ended up being one of the ways that she was identified after her murder. Mm -hmm. She still had this pawn ticket on her. The couples parted ways and Kelly and Addos went to London. Wait, has she not recovered it at that point? Like she hadn't made it to the pawn shop? No. So so the shirt was at the pawn shop. So she mm-hmm. had pawned this shirt and it was there and you could pay two pence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she still had the back. ticket. So that means that so she, she Yeah, so she had the, the ticket. Shop. She said, this okay. shirt is at the pawn shop. If you want it, take this yeah. ticket. If you want it, two pence, you can go buy it. Otherwise, I guess she was not planning on buying it back. Mm-hmm. So... She said, if you want it, otherwise, I don't know, just chuck it or something or give it to somebody else. Um, so she had this pawn ticket on her. So John Kelly ended up picking up some day labor and he earned six pence for that day. Kate took two pence and she told him to go to Flower and Dean Street to the Doss house that they usually stayed at. And she was going to go to the casual ward on another street, which is, is kind of like, there's all these different things I don't really get entirely what they are, but I think it's like kind of like, like there was like the hospital and then a step down was like the infirmary 
And then there was like the casual ward. So it was like you would go to these different places, I think, based on like how severe your issues were. So she told him, she's like, you take the four pence, go get a bed in Flowerandine Street, and I'm going to go to the casual ward. And they're going to meet up uh, that next day. In that next day, she goes to the DOS house. John Kelly is there. She has been kicked out of the casual ward. We don't know why, but she got booted. So now she has nowhere to stay again. Mm -hmm. They, at this point, they're so poor. They end up, they don't buy the shirt back because what they end up doing is they have to actually pawn John Kelly's boots. Oh my God. To be able to get money to eat that day. And Kate says to him that she is going to go to her daughter's house to ask for some money. And she tells him to basically go off and, you know, try to get some work or whatever. But the thing is that, in reality, she did not know where her daughter was living at that time um, because her daughter had moved and, you know, as her, was her thing, she didn't tell her mother where she had moved to because she didn't want her mom coming and doing just exactly this. So it kind of seems like that Kate Eddowes might have been like hiding from John Kelly that she was going to be going and soliciting and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, I think you can see why. Yeah, um, because she didn't really have much of a choice at the yeah, point. Yeah, so seems like that's probably I mean probably that's how it was going so she's she says she's going to see her daughter and they agree that they're going to meet up later that night and they're both going to have their DOS money however they do it and they're going to stay in the DOS house together uh, and they go their separate ways at about 8 p.m in Aldgate which is in the city of London so this is now just over the boundary between Metropolitan Police in Whitechapel and the East End and the city police. So it's like it's they're right on the line mm-hmm. um, like this. It's it's walking distance from like the other murder sites to this site. So just kind of literally right over the border, there is a group of people who are all ca- crowded around this woman who's like so drunk she can't even stand up or anything. And it's Kate Eddowes. So this cop sees this and he basically takes her to the drunk tank um, for the night. And no one around there knows who she is. Um, they're all just kind of strangers that are, I guess, just gawking at this woman who's like passed out. And she's also in an area that no one really recognizes her in. Yeah. So, yeah. But, so, yeah. So she's so drunk, she can't even like lean against the wall. So he essentially like, you know, hobbles her along to the to the drunk tank and sleeps for a while. And at some point, the the desk officer hears her singing in the cell. And with the city police, they would end up um, checking on the people who are there for drunkenness at around 1 a.m. and see if they were good enough to be released to go home. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, with the Metropolitan Police, they didn't release anyone until the morning. So the thing is that if Kate Eddowes had have just been like a few blocks away and been in like Metropolitan Territory Mm -hmm. and this happened, she would have lived because she would have still been in jail. That's yeah. At one o'clock, she so this was eight o'clock. She was drunk. One o'clock in the morning, she's sober enough that the cop sends her on her way. And so he says to her, oh, I haven't actually written exactly what they said. She asked the the police officer, whose name was Hutt, she says, what time is it? And he says, too late for you to get anything to drink. She says, I shall get a damn fine hiding when I get home. He replies, and serve you right. You had no right to get that drunk. Again, because women aren't people. No. He opens the door for her and he says, this way, Mrs., please pull it to she walks out and says, all right, good night, old cock, which I don't know what that means, but I don't know. 
Maybe she still actually means dick, but you know. Yeah. I don't think so because no. it, it, it seemed like it, she, he said he was like in good spirits. She was in good oh, spirits when okay. she was leaving. Okay, so I, okay. I don't know if it was just like a slang thing for like a cop, maybe. Maybe. Anyway, she calls him a cock and she, uh, he sees her walking off towards Flower and Dean Street, mm-hmm. but she also has no money on her. So he doesn't know that though. So she goes walking off toward Flower and Dean Street. So back kind of towards Whitechapel. And she has to kind of find some a way to make money at this yeah. point. So Mitre Square mm-hmm. is about 10 minute walk from this place that she was released from. Uh, and she was released at one o'clock. So at 1.35 in the morning, and these are exact times. And I've, I've wondered how are these so exact? But there were apparently clocks in like a lot of shop windows okay. and on churches and things. And so people would always be checking the time when they would go by, mm-hmm. which is how a lot of these are so specific. I mean, if go. like you didn't, because we have our phones now, so yeah. someone asks, but for the most part, if you're walking by a clock, you do look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, this was the day even before like, you know, watches, mm-hmm. like, you know, pocket watches were expensive and things like that. Um, so at 135, there are three men who are walking by the entrance to Mitre Square and they see a woman that they later identify as Kate Eddowes talking to a man who is described as fair, so like light colored hair. And she has her hand on his chest in a flirtatious manner and they keep walking. They know what's going on. Yeah. They walk on. At 145, a mere 10 minutes later, keep this in mind, 10 minutes, a beat cop goes down his regular walk. Um, which, you know, was, they were usually like 15 to 30 minutes or something like Mm -hmm. that. So he's coming down his regular beat and it goes through Mitre Square and uh, he had his lantern with him and he finds Kate's body, which has been horrifically mutilated way more than anyone else. Um, All in 10 minutes in the pitch black. So by two o'clock, 15 minutes later, um, a doctor arrives and the investigation has been cut. Like the others, her throat has been cut. She is laying on her back and one leg is straight. One leg is bent on the ground. So I think kind of bent, like making kind of like a triangle shape. Um, Her ab, okay, this is where it's going to get really gross. So if you don't want to hear, this is your warning. Skip a bunch if if you don't want to hear like the really bad stuff. So her abdomen had been, quote, ripped open vertically. So Basically, I've always thought like Jack the Ripper, like what does that even mean? Like how do you rip? Like he used a knife. But basically what they say is that he would like jab. I just hit the chair with my arm. He would like basically stab the knife in and then basically pull it with such force oh that it would, it would be like really jagged. And rip. I know it's so, I oh, like my mouth is like watering, like I'm about to vomit, like as I describe it. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. Okay. her So her intestines had been pulled out of her cavity and thrown over the one shoulder and the intestines had actually been nicked and there was fecal matter that had like spilled out her Mm -hmm. intestines, which is important for later on. There was another bit of intestine that had been cut away that was below her other arm and her liver and some of the other structures in her body had been like stabbed and slashed. And it was later discovered that her left kidney was missing. Um, the uterus had been cut through, which left a stump. So basically that was also gone. She had um, she had uh, mutilation to her face. The tip of her nose was cut off and she had like V shapes carved into her cheeks just under her oh eyes. Oh my God. And 
her eyelids were slashed. Definitely no thoughts about. Um, one of her earlobes was cut off, which as you, if you call back to the uh, dear boss letter, he says that he's going to cut the lady's ear yeah. off. But they, so a lot of people point to that who think that that letter is legitimate. But I mean, if, they say if that it happened. came out, then someone could yeah, just read but that. But it, um, no, it didn't, it wasn't oh, okay, published. Okay. It was received on the 27th, but it wasn't actually published until after oh. the double event happened. Mm-hmm. But they think that what happened was that the um, when he cut her neck, he actually cut her earlobe like a little. It was just a piece of her earlobe. Okay, it wasn't like okay. the whole thing. Cut it off and it was like in her clothing. He did all this in the dark too, right? Pitch black. That's crazy. There was no light. And, um, you know, the square, of course, like everything else, it's like surrounded by essentially like apartments, mm-hmm. like these houses that have been turned into multiple family apartments. And um, like one of when I went on the I went on a Jack the Ripper tour obviously obviously and uh one of the people who actually lived on Mitre Square mm-hmm. was um a former police officer oh and so he was like and the the cop that had come around he like knew the guy or whatever and so he ended up coming out but yeah no one heard anything this all happened in 10 minutes um they they go on about the again I'm gonna go back to this like the whole he had to have been a doctor he had to have like medical training and stuff it's like they're, just people, they're slash like, oh, someone the, the kidney is like hard to get to and whatever and it's like well, nothing's hard to get into if you like pull someone's intestines you, yeah out. You that's the thing you like literally just like lifted everything out and yeah pull, and it's like, at some point you just get down there and there's not much else no left. yeah um one thing though that was discovered in her remaining kidney was that she had bright's disease which um is kind of an old-timey diagnosis for mm-hmm. a bunch of different kinds of like a what are now a bunch of different diagnosis diagnoses for um, different kinds of kidney disease. But basically it was like noticeably really, really bad. It would have killed her eventually Bright's disease. This is okay. This I find really sad. So of course everyone suspects like all of these women's like boyfriends and mm-hmm. common law husbands, whatever. Um, but in the mortuary, John Kelly comes to identify her and he is like extremely upset. I didn't really find anything about if they had like a violent, any kind of like violent relationship or anything. It seems like they just had like a loving relationship. And so he shows up and he is just like hysterical and like crying and just like so filled with grief. But the thing is that he was still so poor that he searched through her pockets to see if she had any pennies because he still had literally nothing. Oh, it's so sad. Anyway. Um, I don't know if we should talk about it here, but there's that stupid shawl in the DNA. Nah. No. No. It's not really that important because especially because it's like, uh, I mean, it, it, could, it kind of, it's it, kind it, of a can, suspect. I don't know. I feel like I mentioned it now. I should. Oh, you can bring it up in um, when we talk about the suspects. All right. and the next, Like I think the next episode will probably be all the suspects. Any listeners will have to wait two weeks. Yeah. Or right. next week, depending on like how fast we record. I'm just going to release them whenever I finish. All right. <laughs> so that way it's not like, why are you doing this to me? Um. <laughs> okay. So we are now at October 16th. Mm-hmm. So that was on the night of, I get, do you know, I get confused because they're like, oh, it happened this night. But the thing is that they were all killed in kind of like the early hours of the morning. Mm-hmm. So it's actually like the next day kind of thing. Like it's so it's like the night of um, of like, you know, September 29th into September 30th. Oh. So calendars, what even anyway. 
So October 16th, this is probably one of the most famous letters. And it arrives on the desk of this man whose name is George Lusk. And this man, he is part of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. So this was a group of local businessmen in the East End who thought that the cops weren't doing enough. The like home secretary wasn't doing enough. And obviously all this murder and hysteria is bad for business. Mm -hmm. So they decide that they're going to do something about it. And they form the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. And they basically send out um, like (laughs) roving bands of local citizens to to like kind of patrol the streets and Mm -hmm. hopefully catch the killer. But then a lot of times it was just like, you know, a bunch of like angry dudes with bats and stuff. So anyway, George Lusk is in charge of it all. And he's been in like newspapers. He's been writing to politicians and stuff saying like, you need to offer a reward for information. And mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, it's like, basically it's um like, it's atrocious that you aren't offering a reward for this. Like, why don't you care basically mm-hmm. about these people? So he had gotten kind of a lot of publicity about it and people know who he was. So this letter and a package shows up on his desk. And this one's actually an interesting one to look at the actual letter, the picture of the letter, because the writing is just so weird. Like, it's just so like dark and almost like jagged. And it's it's the weirdest thing. Um, And here is where here's what it says. From hell, Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out. Only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. And in the package was half of a human kidney. Oh my God. It had Bright's disease. And it was the left side of the kidney, which was the one. So it was like, the. so there's, there's, I mean, I think that a lot of people think if any letter is real. This was probably the, the one. real one. Yeah. Because yeah. it came with the kidney. Yeah. And there are some people argue that it very easily could have been a medical student or something who took like a specimen, like a preserved specimen. Yes. And cut and sent it as like a hoax letter. It could be. But the Bright's but, disease was, was that a well-known thing? Like the newspaper? I don't know if it was. Yeah. But, or a lot of people, I don't know. I don't, didn't someone else have it or no? No, I think uh, one of them had like consumption. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and he, if you notice, does not use the phrase Jack the Ripper. No. So that's the the famous from hell letter. The There was also a, so sorry, going back to the night that the double event happened. Um, so the, the Met is looking into Elizabeth Stride's murder. And then Kate Eddowes is discovered like not that long later. Mm -hmm. And so they quickly realize that they both have these murders that are almost certainly Jack the Ripper. And so they kind of start combing through and city police end up coming into uh, Met territory and they find um, what's called the Goulston Street Graffito. So Goulston Street was a nearby street and they found um, they found some like words chalked onto the wall. A lot of times in like movies and stuff, they show them as like these huge letters that were written on the wall. But in reality, they were only about like an inch high. Okay. And it said, the Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. And underneath that was a piece of an apron that was stained with blood and fecal matter. And oh, it matched fecal matter. a part of the apron that was missing from Kate Eddowes. So the killer, it seemed, had like ripped off a piece of her um 
her apron and mm-hmm. probably like wrap a knife or something in it. Mm-hmm. And he threw it down. And so this um, this kind of showed that it that, you know, it's almost certainly that is a piece of cloth from the murder scene. Yes. And that shows that the the murder was going back into Whitechapel, not away from it. Mm-hmm. So that supports more of like that. He was a local mm-hmm. you know, like he, he lived in Whitechapel because uh, he was running back that way. There's a lot of controversy as to whether the the writing was from him. Like, did he stop and pull out a piece of chalk and write this on the wall? And I've always kind of thought that um, that it had to be. Because, like, what are the odds that, like, this uh, cloth is going to, the apron is going to be found underneath it and then this is written there. But recently... Was there, there a was lot a, of graffiti around that area? There was, indeed. So, so it was small. Yeah, there's been a lot of controversy about it because um, one of, like, the top police guys ended up showing up and there were police there were like city police officers guarding it waiting for it to be sent up so that it could be photographed mm-hmm. and uh like the commissioner whoever comes along he's like you need to wipe that down like get rid of that and he ordered them to like wipe it off oh and so people are like oh like you know they destroyed evidence blah 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 um eh, did they? so it turns out there was like that that building was like um like there were a lot of like Jewish cobblers, I guess, that were there. Okay. And there was a lot of like graffiti written in chalk. Like I guess yeah. it was what people did. You yeah. didn't have spray paint, I guess. So you just wrote on the walls. And so there were a lot of things that were written about there and a lot of like anti-Semitism and stuff like so that. So it could it could be unrelated completely. It could just yeah. be like a, a convenient Yeah, so there place. were a lot of things. So it could have just been under like another one that were like, you know, Jews are the worst or, yeah, you yeah, know, whatever yeah, yeah. people were like writing at the time because it was like a business place so it's you know it's very conceivable that it could have just been like a disgruntled customer Mm -hmm. who is like you know angry about something maybe bought something that like didn't hold up or whatever and he writes this on the wall angrily or whatever that sounds more yeah yeah and and there were a lot of them and it was very small writing Mm -hmm. it's I think it's a really common thing like in in movies and things they show it as being like this massive thing written all across the wall and it wasn't that at all no okay and uh there's People kind of wonder about the words, especially because there are a couple of different ways that people wrote it down. Okay. So obviously, there was no picture taken, so we don't know exactly what it was. We're relying on the accounts of uh, police officers who saw it. And so there are a couple of like kind of minor changes about, you know, like word placement and word choice. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, is it saying that they're not going to be blamed for nothing? Like, is that uh, like a cockney double negative? And mm-hmm. it, it just means that like, you know, it's, you know, it, anyway, it's a double negative, but basically like they're, you know, well, it's not for nothing sort of thing. Or is it saying that, oh, I'm not a Jew, you idiot. Oh, if, okay. if it was indeed written by yeah. the killer. Which, and I don't think it is. Yeah. I've, I've changed my opinion yeah. lately having heard some different like researchers takes on oh, it. Okay. And, and I, I was like, oh, do you know what? That makes a lot more sense actually that, mm-hmm. that it wouldn't be related. Okay, now we are going to go on to our last canonical victim. Okay. This was Mary Kelly, uh, basically known as, like, the young hot one that they like to, like, sex up in, like, the movies and stuff about it. She's, like, the one that like, Christina Ricci plays or whatever. Heather right? Graham. Or Heather Graham. That's who yes. it was. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, and so she's pretty, she, she's pretty different from the rest of the victims. She was only 25 years old. Mm-hmm. I think this is why she's kind of portrayed as like this, like kind of damsel in distress and like this kind of like 
I don't know, like delicate flower who's had like horrible things happen to her as opposed to like the other ones because it's like, ew, they're old and they're old and they got married and they're divorced and it's their fault. Yeah. So I think that I think that's really kind of played into things at the time. Yeah. But then also now how we view like, you know, it's how we still view women. It's disgusting. So Mary Kelly, the one who's always being, yeah, put in like a very tight, low cut bodice in reenactments anyway i mean that might have been what she wore but it so, doesn't mean anything well she yeah. so she was she was the last victim mm-hmm. she's probably the one that most people would be able to recall a name yes and she's kind of the most famous one but we actually know less about her than anyone else so i'm gonna start her story Is it because she lived the least no. Like she was youngest. Oh, okay. So I'm gonna, I'm not going to start her story at birth, mm-hmm. and we'll get into that. But I'm going to start in 1886. So in 1886, she meets this man in a lodging house named Joseph Barnett. They uh, meet up the next day at like a pub, and they talk a bit, and they decide we're going to shack up and move in together. A lot mm-hmm. like we were talking about earlier. Um, so like two days after they met, they're living together and in like a common law relationship anyway. This is the story that she told him about her early life. So she said that she was born in Ireland and she had six or seven brothers and one sister. When she was very young, her family moved from Ireland to Wales. And then at 16, she says she got married to a man whose last name was Davies, but he died not long after in a mining explosion. She ends up moving to Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales, Mm -hmm. uh, and moves in with a cousin. And this cousin is the person who introduces her to sex work. But it's not like what these other women had, where it's like like survival on the street, a couple of pennies a night. Um, It was like a higher end, kind of like in brothels and things like that. Okay. It's because she was younger, right? I think, yeah. I think because she was younger, she was supposedly like beautiful and... um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was like a good singer. She was supposedly like really charming and everything. So she was just like a higher so level. She, yeah, so she yeah. just had like a lot of things. And even even like the people who are at Doss houses and in the in Whitechapel and things and living on those same streets, the ones that are younger, they're going to be commanding a higher price point yes. anyway, right? Because mm-hmm. people are going to want to hire a more attractive person because mm-hmm. that's true. That's just how it goes. And so um yeah, so she she was able to kind of get into a better place than, you know, these women who had been, who were like middle-aged and, you know, like had all kinds of diseases and missing teeth and all these sort of things. Yeah. Um, around 1884, she moves to London and she's working in a high-end brothel in the West End. She has all these beautiful clothes. Um, she she This older rich man says, you know, come with me to France. And I'm going to take care of you. And you'll basically be like my personal courtesan or whatever. And so she goes, but she comes back two weeks later saying she didn't like it. Oh. Which, I mean, I went to Paris and I didn't like it. (laughs) So I get that. Okay. I had a bad time on the subway anyway. Well, subway's not It's not about me crying on the subway (laughs) in public like a psychopath. Anyway. But even though she said she didn't like it there, she didn't really elaborate beyond like why she didn't like it. Mm-hmm. She did start going by the French version of her name of Marie Jeanette rather than Mary Jane or Mary Janet, which was mm-hmm. like the English way. And this would end up being the name that was put on her death certificate and on the engraving on her casket and her memorial. Um, so she, you know, she decided it was Marie Jeanette and 
you know, I think it's nice that people kind of honored that that's that's what she wanted. wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And then so somehow, not really explained why, but perhaps because of excessive drinking, she gets kicked out of this fancy brothel and she has no choice but to go to the East End. And she ends up uh, moving in with uh, with Joseph Barnett into 13 Miller's Court, which is just off Dorset Street, which was interestingly called the worst street in London. So all these other streets that I've been talking about where like all these the worst like Doss houses yes. were of like Thrall Street, Flower and Dean Street, mm-hmm. Dorset Street was the worst one. Oh. So even though this is called Miller's Court, it's actually on Dorset Street, but it's kind of like a little courtyard and okay. there's like kind of buildings all around it um and people like living on different floors and whatnot so she ends up being in number 13 it's a ground floor apartment um she would bring home uh sex workers and let them stay the night there um in the in this room that she and barnett were living in and it was just like a kind of like a studio sort of was thing. it like out of kindness or was she charging yes. them okay. no it seems like she was just uh like she she had made friends with people basically okay. and she was like oh well you know come come back to my place let's sit by the fire and this sort of thing mm-hmm. but joseph barnett shit was that his name i forget his first name yeah it was joseph damn it but Joseph Barnett, he did not like it. He didn't want Mary Kelly associating with these people. He knew that she occasionally engaged in sex work, mm-hmm. but he hated it. And he would try to like forbid her from doing it. He was like, you know, you're not going to do that. I work. I'm going to bring home the money and support us and everything. Um, and she, but she keeps bringing these women back. And he, I don't know, I think he thinks it's going to be like a bad influence on her make her want to go back out on the street or something. So he decides that the way to fix this is he's going to move out. So then he moves out with his money. So now what's she going to do? So now she's in this, uh, this room by herself. And at one point they, um, they had an argument and someone broke a window pane. And so they took like some extra piece of cloth. It was like a jacket or something. Mm -hmm. And they just hung it over top of like the broken glass because they couldn't afford to. Yeah. So that is also going to come up later. Things kind of finally came to a head um, on October 30th. Joseph Barnett, he lost his job. He's like laid off or fired or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so there is no money. They owe back rent. So Mary goes out into the, um, into you know, the White Chapel, High Street and whatever, and starts uh, engaging in sex work. He gets super mad about her. He gets super mad about it with her. Um even though they literally have no way to pay yeah, for anything. Yeah, like what else was she going to do? And he, so he leaves. He like storms out and he leaves on October 30th. So from October 30th until November 9th, uh, she is there by herself. And they oh. they had lost the key to the door. So when they still lived together, they would have to leave the door unlocked or else if someone was in and they had like the latch locked on it, they, they would have to let the other one in. Oh, okay. So... It would just be open when, you know, they didn't have a key to lock it up, basically. Even though there's a window. window Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, the window's broken. So, now we are going to go to Mary Kelly's last night, which was November 9th. So, at 11.45, this is, okay, this is, this one lady, Mrs. Cox, oh, but she's, like, the most of these people who are, like, out all night. I'm like, what are you doing? I don't know. Anyway. If we lived in a time, it would make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, um, it is really, it's just so strange to like read about these people's schedules because it was just like, 
people who are like housewives and whatever, they would be like up all night doing all this stuff and like going out and meeting up with their friends at like, you know, two in the morning and things like that. And it's just, it makes you, and then other people would have their shifts would start at like three in the morning. Yeah. So their, their day would start at 3 a.m. And so they would be getting up and going to work while other people were still like, you know, having yeah. their day. At 11.45, the comings and goings of the um, the unknowable Mrs. Cox starts. So she sees Mary Kelly. So she lives in Miller's Court, too, in a different unit. So she knows Mary Kelly personally. She sees her talking to a man that she describes as having a ginger mustache. And she says goodnight to Mary Kelly as she walks by. So she spoke to her. She knows it was her. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she goes away for like 15 minutes. And then she comes back at midnight. At about 1230, a different neighbor heard Mary singing in her apartment. And uh, she was like going to get up and say something. And her husband was like, just leave her alone. Yeah. So they stay in bed. One o'clock, Mrs. Cox leaves again. She briefly returns not long after because Mm -hmm. it's raining. And so around this time, around one o'clock, she sees that there is a light on in Mary's room. She can see like the light under the door and she can still hear her singing. Um, at two in the morning, there's a man named George Hutchinson, and he he also knows Mary Kelly. Um, they were friends or whatever. He might have been a client of hers at some point. Uh, but he meets her on Flower and Dean Street, which is like right nearby. And uh, she talks to him and she asks him if she can borrow sixpence from him. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, I don't have any money to give you right now. Mm-hmm. Sorry. And she says, well, I'm going to have to go find some money then. And she starts walking towards the Thrall Street. So these are, again, like the worst streets in the worst part of town. But that's how you find your client. Yeah, too. that's that's yeah, yeah, that's just where they are. Um, so she goes off walking towards Thrall Street. But before she gets there, Hutchison sees her stop and talk to this man who has um, like nicer clothes. He has like kid gloves and he's holding a package and his like mustache is like turned up or something. Mm-hmm. So he had like kind of noticeably nicer clothes than other people. And he ends up stopping Mary and they, they have a couple of words. They're laughing. And then they end up going off arm in arm towards Dorset Street, towards Mary's apartment. Okay. And George Hudson ends up, for whatever reason, he doesn't really explain. He kind of trails them and follows them back to, um, to her place. Mm-hmm. And he stands outside and waits. And he describes this guy as being about 35 years old, dark hair with the curly mustache, and says that he is of a Jewish appearance. So is he really or does he just have brown hair? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. You know, or it, just with a mustache is so weird. You're just like, yeah. yeah. Three o'clock. It's Mrs. Cox again. Mm-hmm. She's come back. I think for the last time at three in the morning. And uh, at this point, she sees that there is no light in Mary Kelly's room. She okay. doesn't hear anything. She goes up to her um, to her room. She doesn't go to sleep. What the, what does she do? I don't know. This is the mystery that I want to know about what is up with Mrs. Cox. Anyway. Maybe that's the hour she kept. I, keep, I know. I keep hours like that all she the time. She just hangs out in her apartment for like several more hours, like just all fully nocturnal and just like coming and going like every five yeah. minutes. It's weird. Anyway, at four in the morning, so one hour later, uh, the neighbor who actually was going to tell Mary to stop singing, she has a little kitten named Diddles. Aww. And the kitten stands on her neck and wakes her up. Because cats do not evolve. They're always the same. Yeah, my cat does the same Stands thing. right on so, her neck yep. and wakes her up. 
And uh, so this woman, this neighbor woman, hears a faint cry of, oh, murder. And she rolls over and goes back to sleep. So it that might sound like very, like kind of, it's one of those things where I think you, you look back on it and people are like, what? Oh, shit. Yeah. You heard someone yelling murder and you didn't come. But it was actually like a really common thing that people would yell out. Like if they were going to be, if they thought they were going to be mugged or something, mm-hmm. they would just yell out like, oh, murder. And because they so, want people to come. Yeah. So yeah. murder was actually, it, as we, as I think I've said many, many a time, it was not very common at yeah. the time, but it was a common thing to be shouted Shouting. out. Mm-hmm. And so people were desensitized to it. Okay. So she, I don't know, somehow gets diddles to leave her alone and she goes back to sleep. So that was 4 a.m. There are a couple of possible sightings uh, by different by two different people at 8.30 and 10 in the morning. Um, the coroner, had, like the doctor who did her autopsy, said that she was dead by then. She was already dead. Mm-hmm. So some people think that these two people either um, – Apparently, neither of them knew her really well and didn't speak to her, Mm -hmm. but they described like what she was wearing and things. And I guess they knew her by sight or something like that. Okay. Um, But it's kind of, it's possible that they just have like their dates wrong. That's like a common thing. That's true. Um, But they testified at the inquest and they said they were sure that they saw her. But I mean, she was dead by then. She was long dead. Now we're going to go to 1045 a.m. The owner of this house, uh, whose name was McCarthy, I believe I might have talked about him earlier because he was one of these few guys who owned the majority of these DOS houses and stuff in these low rent areas. And they were all kind of like connected through their illegal activities and marriage and things like that. Anyway, he decides 1045 on November the 9th is the time to send his employee to go get all that back rent from Mary Kelly. I think it was like about six weeks worth or something like that. Mm -hmm. So he sends his employee. I didn't even write his name down because I don't really care that much. There's too many names already. Mm -hmm. He goes and he knocks on her door. There's no answer. He tries the door. It's locked. Remember, they don't have a key. So if it's locked, that means she's inside. So he goes around to the outside Mm -hmm. to where there's the broken glass Mm -hmm. and there's like the whatever makeshift curtain they have hanging in front of it. He lifts it up and looks through and he sees one of the most horrific sights that has ever been seen by human eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the horrifically, like, if you thought Kate Eddowes was bad, this was so much even worse. Well, this one, he had light. He would have been he able a to lot more see time. and time. Yeah. Like, so everything was guy, on the side. Yeah. What do you think you do when you see this? Um, I would barf. After you barf, I would run. I, I don't even know. Like, I would find a cop, obviously, but Not I him. don't think he would do it. He goes it. to McCarthy. Oh, no. Because as we talked about before, these people, like, they owned everyone, basically. Like, mm-hmm. you you didn't do anything without their consent. Like, they were, like, the lords of these places. Mm-hmm. Um, so this guy, instead of going to the cops, he goes and gets McCarthy. McCarthy comes and looks through the window, and he says to the guy, Okay, yeah, go get the cops. Oh. So employee runs off. He goes and gets two um, inspectors and brings them back. And um, there are, I, I put down a couple of quotes from like these people because I think it, it kind of describes how bad it really was that oh, for God. like for these people. Because I think you think of like modern day, kind of like all the horrible crimes that have happened and like the, autopsy pictures are on the internet and things but this is like this is 
This is like one of the worst ones ever, like in the history of human murder. And Uh, these people saw it and they were, they've never seen anything like it. So, and they don't get any mental health. Oh, no. It didn't. No. No, you don't have a psychiatrist. No, of course not. You just had gin. Yeah. So the this employee guy, he was later um, interviewed by newspapers and he said, quote, the site that we saw, I cannot drive away from my mind. It looked more like the work of the devil than of a man. I had heard a great deal about the Whitechapel murders, but I declare to God I had never expected to see such a sight as this. The whole scene is more than I can describe. I hope I may never see such a sight as this again. When the two inspectors got there, the first one looked through and he like almost vomited. And he said to his partner, for God's sake, don't look. But he looks anyway. I mean, I would. He was so like scarred by it that like 50 years later after he retired, he wrote his memoirs, which a lot of the cops did. Mm -hmm. did And he was still like he still wrote about like how it's still. It haunts his dreams probably. Oh, yeah. Because it was just so bad. So. Before we get to all the horribleness, um, so they get the like the detectives and everything to come, but everyone just stands outside for a couple of hours mm-hmm. and they're waiting for like with you know they know that she's in there they know that she's been murdered but they think that there are bloodhounds coming, so at the time bloodhounds were not used to like track and whatever mm-hmm. it was a very new thing and um, the police commissioner his name was sir charles warren he in october was looking into whether the bloodhounds were reliable to Mm -hmm. track and so he had about like six different tests done these two bloodhounds whose names were adorably barnaby and burgo oh my gosh so So he had barnaby and burgo brought in and uh they he did like about six tests with Mm -hmm. different like police officers volunteers where they would get a head start and they would like run through one of these busy London parks, like Regent Park or Hyde Park and hide. And the dog would have to track them. And at some point, Sir Charles Warren, when it, when they had been like successful all these times, he decided to try it for himself to make sure that like he was really well hidden and took like a circuitous route and whatever. Mm -hmm. And they found him every time. So he was going to be buying these dogs from this breeder to have them for like at the next murder scene. They were going to see if they could track Jack the Ripper by scent. However, the newspapers and other like, you know, prominent people found out about this and they were just making fun of him left and right. They were like, oh, he's getting used dogs. That's so dumb. Mm -hmm. And basically he got like mocked out of doing it. And it seems like the the kind of like the funding that they were going to use just like suddenly disappeared. And so they ended up. Um, they never really told the breeder, I guess, what was going on. So mm-hmm. the breeder took the one dog to like a dog show. Okay. And because he didn't hear anything back from them. And mm-hmm. then he ended up coming back for the other dog. And so he just took Barnaby and Burgo back because he figured at that point, okay, they're not going to pay me. So yeah, that's take true. my dogs and I'm yeah. going home. But these cops, because people can't communicate, I guess, they thought that the dogs were coming. And so they stood outside for hours oh, no. waiting for these cops to come. And so then finally, one of these big wig guys finally pulls up and he's like, what the, like, what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you all standing around out here? And they're like, but the, the, the dogs, it's like, there are no dogs. I don't know. I'm just dramatizing this. Anyway, there are no <laughs> dogs. So McCarthy, the owner, he ends up going and getting an ax and he breaks down the door to get them so that they can all go in. Mm-hmm. 
because of course there's no privacy and integrity. Everyone just goes in and takes a look. I'm surprised they didn't send someone through the window to open. I the think door. it's because it was like a, it was like a window pane, so oh. it was like small. Okay, that makes more sense. It wasn't like a full one sheet okay. of glass. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but they also were like they were very smartly not letting people in because they thought that a dog was going to come for the scent. Damn, which like yeah. that would make sense then that you wouldn't go in because you don't want to get everyone else's scent all over. Yes, that's true. But it turned out they just wasted hours and hours. As her body decomposed. Here is, okay, here's what happened to Mary Kelly. This one is like, like even worse than the other one. So like content warning all the way, skip ahead if you need to. It's really bad. I I actually kind of just like glossed over a lot of it because I think a lot of the description was just kind of gratuitous. Yes, I understand that. So, but anyway, here we go. So the picture is really famous. Like the one picture of her body. Mm-hmm. It's it was used for like the cover of books and things, which oh, a lot no. of yeah, and like a lot of ripperologists were like really upset with that because yes. it was like so disrespectful. Like it is put, like an autopsy picture or whatever crime scene picture no. is like the cover. And I think that yeah, like I remember watching Jack the Ripper documentaries as a kid and seeing that picture, and you kind of get like a bit desensitized oh. to it. But if you really look at it, it is horrific. But the interesting thing about this picture, though, is that it is the first crime scene picture, like oh. crime, like taken at the crime, nothing touched yet. So, and there are two of them. So for the longest time, there was just the one that was like the frontal view where you can see like her face and what's left of it. And, mm-hmm. um, but then there's actually one from over the bed and kind of like across her body, um, which I had never seen until I went on that Jack the Ripper tour. And, oh, okay. uh, I wasn't really into it at that point, but yeah, I was just yeah, like, oh, yeah. I'm in London. I'm going to go. You might as well her. do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I didn't know that this second picture. So this second picture had been found like um, within the last couple of decades. So she was laying on her back on the bed. Her head was tilted towards the window. So when all these people lifted up the little curtain, looked in, her face was staring right back at them. Her right arm was laying across her body. And basically like her hand was kind of like in her abdominal cavity uh her face was mutilated beyond recognition um her ex living barnet guy he ended up having to they said they identified her by her like eyes like her literal like eyeballs and her ears oh my god yeah. um so uh, so with her face her face was described as like hacked and her, like, her nose was cut off, like Kate Eddowes. Um, parts of her ears were cut off, her lips. Um, and then basically you just kind of, like, hacked and cut at her face and anything that you could get. Um, and, I mean, if you, like, when you look at the picture, especially if you kind of, like, know what you're looking at, because it is kind of black and white and not the greatest quality because it was 1888. Mm-hmm. Like, you can really kind of tell, like, where the structures, like, kind of used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's bad. <laughs> So all of the flesh from her abdomen and her thighs were removed in kind of like these big flaps. Mm-hmm. And he put them on like the bedside table. Oh, no. So he had like pulled out all of, they said all of the viscera from the abdominal cavity was removed. So under her head, he had actually, he had cut off one of, well, he cut off both of her breasts. He put one of the breasts, uh, the kidneys and the uterus underneath her head. And, uh, and he put the other breast like down by her one foot 
uh, her liver was put between her feet. Her intestines and spleen were on the other side from the breast of her body. And there were also like kind of jagged, like ripping, just kind of like slashing wounds to like her, her arms and her calves. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially from the the newer photo that was found of her scene, you can really see that like he actually on her one leg, he took off like so much flesh that you can actually see the bone and like there's oh my god like air on both sides of it jesus so he like spent a lot of time there and was basically just like kind of experimenting finally got to yeah anything everything that's going on yeah um so is that the the thing that they did not find though was her heart so her heart had been removed from her body and it was not there so oh, I think, like, I've heard at some point some people thought that, like, maybe it was, like, thrown in the fire mm-hmm. or that he just, like, took it with him or something. Because yeah. he didn't take, like, the uterus or the kidneys like he had with previous mm-hmm. victims. It was the heart that was missing. So, you know, um, obviously that's that's kind of fueled a century plus of speculation and conspiracies of what happened. And I, I don't know. We can imagine. I don't need to go into that. Well, she was the last victim. Wasn't she? Allegedly. Okay. Um, some people also think that her, that like the clothes, clothes that were in the room had been put into the fireplace to burn. And mm-hmm. that way it was like a low light. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if like all the wood had been used up or something, but that's like a, I've heard that a bunch of times that they think that like he used um, uh, clothes to like fuel the fire. And then that way it was like, light enough that he could kind of see what he was doing, but not so light that people could see that yeah. there was light in the room. That's as much detail as we're going to go into there because yeah. that's horrific enough. She ended up, she was given a Catholic burial. Mm-hmm. Um, no family was found to claim her remains. And this is because this story that she had told Joseph Barnett, um, nothing can really be found to corroborate it. Like there's no records of this like family coming of, a miner named Davies being blown up in a mine explosion. Uh, like nothing that she said mm-hmm. made any sense. And apparently she spoke Welsh. She had, had a Welsh accent and um, which would make sense if she had moved there as a very young child. Yeah. But I think that a lot of people, maybe not a lot, but I, there, I think that one of the theories is that she might have just actually been from Wales. Yeah. She wasn't actually Irish. Um, one of the interesting things is that um, one of the Kate Kateados, mm-hmm. she actually would give the name sometimes to the police when she would get arrested for drunkenness or whatever. She would give the name Marianne Kelly, but it was because it was just such a common name. Yeah. And people at the time, you didn't have IDs or anything. So people would just change their names all the time. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, Annie, was, Annie Chapman was with that guy for a while who sold sieves. So then she started going by the last name Sibby. So basically mm-hmm. you could turn up anywhere and just say to people like, I'm so-and-so and that's yeah. your name now. And there's nothing to find out like where you came from or what happened or anything like that. So all that stuff that she told them, like nothing really adds up about it. So oh. is any of it true? Is some of it true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were some stories that like a, a letter had once come from like a father or something like that, but mm-hmm. – only one person said it and no one else knew about it. She didn't really talk about her family. Um, but so she was Catholic. So they they gave her a Catholic burial. Um, Joseph Barnett, he was out of a job. So he did not have anything to pay yeah. for her funeral. 
Um, but there was like a local sextant at a church who like donated everything they needed to at this point, there was um, like kind of this mass outpouring of sympathy, I think a lot more than the other victims. And I think part of it that played into that was because of all these stories about like how, you know, like beautiful and worldly and young and everything oh, that she yeah. was. Mm -hmm. and so I think she got a lot more kind of sympathy because she fit that kind of like uh, ideal of womanhood or whatever, mm -hmm. like more than the other ones. Like, I don't know. Gross. Anyway. So supposedly at her funeral procession, like a massive crowd of people, I didn't see an estimate, but so many people that they apparently blocked the entire road at the mortuary. And there was like the horse, horse-drawn hearse there. And uh, there was like two uh, carts of mourners that included like Joseph Barnett and someone from um, McCarthy's lodging house who's like a representative of him. And then some of the other like sex workers, or as they called them, unfortunates. Um, who had been like her friends and some yeah. of them had testified at the inquest about her death. Um, so they were all there, but then all these people were gathered around and they were like, you know, it was basically a ruckus. Um, at the point that the casket was brought out, everyone was kind of like rushing forward and trying to touch it mm -hmm. before it got into the hearse. And then when it was actually put into the hearse and started like moving away, apparently like all the men took off their hats in respect and women were like crying in the street and shouting out, God forgive her, which oh can God. I just say, what the fuck? I mean, that's forgive it's, her. It's the time. I know. Too. Well, is it? I feel like a no. lot of people think that now too. They think it, but they won't. It's not. I don't know. Oh, it's just so sick. And like, I, I mean, it's still, I think it still really happens with a lot of like, victims who are sex workers today where oh, people for are sure. like, oh, but they got themselves into this bad situation. They said so. it about like anyone with a different lifestyle than, you know, yeah. a straight person. That's basically, that's, that's yeah. what it is. So. so anyway, I just thought that was particularly gross. But anyway, everyone was real sad. God forgive her because she led this huge life of sin, blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh. Um, In the 1880s, uh, there was a headstone put up in this cemetery that she was buried at. Mm -hmm. But in the 50s, the land had been reclaimed, which oh I don't gosh. really. Apparently, they like re-numbered everything. And then oh. I think they bury more people on top. That makes Because it's the city of London and yeah. it's been a long time and people keep dying. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so this guy, he had like her, her plot number based mm -hmm. on when she was buried in 1888. But it was now not plot number anymore because they had been renumbered when the land yeah. was reclaimed. Yeah. So in the 90s, there was a superintendent of the cemetery and he did some research into it and he figured out where her actual burial place was mm -hmm. and the, the memorials now in the correct spot. Okay. And that is the last of our canonical victims. Ooh. Well, this is probably a good place to end it because it is going to be a very long episode like the last is one. there any other kind Not and with me our next episode will have i guess our speculations or your speculations sorry about no i want you to speculate too my speculations are all wrong <laughs> so i mean to be fair i think basically everyone's wrong yeah i mean at this point i'm gonna start saying it's a bear <laughs> those coyotes Ugh. 
Those coyotes that live in England. <laughs> coyotes live everywhere. Excuse me. Well, thank you for coming in and doing this with me. Thank you for having me. No problem. And we'll be finishing this off either before Halloween or after. I'm not really sure. This episode's coming out this Thursday, but whenever the next one's coming out is whenever we record. So I'll get it out earlier if I can. If I can't, then it's just going to be a surprise for whoever can. So um, thanks for coming. And uh, to everyone who's still listening at this point, um, follow me on all the social medias, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm more active on Twitter now, but I'm not really seeing anything interesting just randomly. I don't know, tweeting at like four in the morning with all of the worst spelling mistakes. So <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> um, and thanks for coming. And that's it. So see you next week. And hopefully you don't die. Bye. Bye.